Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. love aliens. And we're in. We're in. Welcome to Mystery Team Inc. I'm Maggie. And I'm Kayla. And I made a mistake. Oh no. <laughs> um, well, Kayla, Kayla already knows this, but I did too much research. And so as a result... What? Someone at Mystery Team Inc. did too much research? We really got to get someone on quality control over there. Um... <laughs> I did too much research, and so this is going to be a two-part episode. I just <laughs> so, can't wait. Oops, and you're welcome. <laughs> um. I feel like there's been a lot of oops and you're welcomes lately. <laughs> I tried to do a cryptid. You, you tried to do one episode. Oh, no. Oh, I guess we're going to have to make a shirt. Uh, yeah, I'm literally oops, writing it down. and you're welcome. <laughs> Are you ready for a mystery? I'm so ready. Well, fuckle the buck up, because here we go. On February 2nd, 1922, that's right, 100 years and, like, when this airs two weeks ago. At 7 a.m., a man named Henry Peavy was riding the trolley from his apartment on 5th Street to the Alvarado Court Apartments in the Westlake District of Los Angeles. Ooh, we love a local murder. We love an L.A. mystery. He was working as a valet for one of the biggest film directors in Hollywood, William Desmond Taylor. He stopped on his way to pick up some milk of magnesia for William, who suffered from chronic stomach problems. On this day, William was going to court to testify on Henry Peavy's behalf. The day before, Henry Peavy had been arrested. Henry Peavy was a gay black man in the 1920s and the police had arrested him for quote-unquote social vagrancy and charged him with being lewd and dissolute. We don't know the true nature of what actually happened, except we know that they arrested him in a park nearby William Desmond Taylor's house. At any rate, William Desmond Taylor had put up the bail and promised to testify on his behalf, and because William Desmond Taylor was a very famous movie director, he was expected to basically get the whole thing thrown out. This is how we advocate. Correct. Use your privilege. Use your privilege. Henry Peavy said of William that he had, quote, worked for a lot of men, but Mr. Taylor was the most wonderful of all of them. Henry Peavy arrived at the Alvarado Court Apartments just before 7.30 a.m. The Alvarado Court Apartments were home to mostly movie people, including actor Douglas McLean and Edna Perviance, who frequently played Charlie Chaplin's leading lady. 
As he walked up to the bungalow belonging to William Desmond Taylor, he noticed that all the lights in the house were on. He unlocked the door and pushed it open, and as he did, he saw William's feet. William was laying flat on the floor parallel to his writing desk. He was fully dressed in his waistcoat and tie, still wearing his shoes from the night before. Henry Peavy called to him but got no response. Then he saw the blood under his head. Henry ran into the courtyard screaming and waving his arms. William Desmond Taylor was dead. And, as the author of our source for this episode put it, Hollywood would never be the same. Oh, we love a Hollywood mystery. We do, it's true. I'm so excited. I'm going to take this opportunity to acknowledge my sources for this episode. The main source is William J. Mann's book, Tinseltown, Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood. It's a great book. Uh, It's only like 50% about this story. It's also 50% about just other crazy stuff that was happening in Hollywood at the time. Um, And all of the impact and influence that it had on this story if you like true crime and if you like early hollywood it's a really great read it reads like a novel a compilation of work called taylorology a continuing exploration of the life and death of william desmond taylor by bruce long which can be found on silentera.com and a few articles that i will link in the show notes within a few minutes william desmond taylor's apartment was full of neighbors William's neighbor, Edna Perviance, immediately called her close friend, actress Mabel Normand, to tell her the news. Mabel didn't believe what she was hearing and asked a friend who lived close by, director Charles Maine, to go over to the apartment and see. Henry Peavy did a quick walkthrough of the house and noticed that nothing seemed out of the ordinary. The place was just as he had left it when he left the night before. William's ledger and a bunch of cancelled checks were spread out on his roll-top desk. He had been doing his taxes. The back door and front door were locked, but the front door locked automatically when you closed it, so that didn't really mean much. The only things out of the ordinary were that the rug was, quote, a little kicked up, and a chair, which normally sat by the door, was standing over William's left foot. You love a mystery where a chair is in the wrong spot. We do. We love a mystery where the clues are, like, in the room like an I spy book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Also, something I love about the source I used for this is that he, um, every time he uses the word clue, he spells it clue the way they spelled it back in the 20s, C-L-E-W. I did not know that that's how they spelled clue in the 20s. It is. And he says at the beginning, like, just so you know, throughout this book, I will be spelling it clue. (laughs) And you know that's just for him. As was the style at the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, William J. Mann, I also listened to an interview with him because Wondery did a podcast about this story and used his book as a source, as like the, the main source and collaborated with him. And he gives a great interview and he's also like a history teacher um, and has written several books on this topic. So definitely go check out his work. What a cool dude. Yeah, correct. All the men in the room remarked on how oddly positioned William was, as if he had just laid down and died. Neighbor Neil J. Harrington remarked, I don't believe the man fell in that position. Actor Douglas McLean suggested that maybe he didn't. The night before, Douglas McLean and his wife had heard something. A shot, they thought. <gasps> At about 7.50 the night before, Douglas's wife Faith heard what she called a shattering report. Their maid leaned in from the kitchen and asked if she had heard the shot. Faith said she wasn't sure, so she opened the front door. 
Looking through her screen door, she saw a man standing on William's porch. His back was to her, and the door to William's apartment was open. When he turned around, Faith said he didn't look surprised or alarmed. The lights were on behind her, reflecting off her own screen door, so it was hard to see clearly. But she said that the man was dressed as, quote, my idea of a motion picture burglar. Should like I do a, a voice? Sims burglar. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I'm going to say for this series. I'm going to have to do a lot of voices. I'm going to say for this series, I would like you to do as many voices as you can. I think they all basically fall into the like what the voice that you do that makes my monkey brain happy. The transatlantic, yeah. Um, yeah. I have prepared myself for this possibility. It's everything I've ever wanted and you're my best friend. <laughs> And I'm yours. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and you're mine. Say it in the voice. I'm going to take it again. No, say I'm your best friend in the voice. Oh. And you're mine. Yes. Uh, she said that he was dressed as my idea of a motion picture burglar. <laughs> it just like tickles me. Wait, but I need to do it. I, I need a thought. I need an actor thought behind it. I have one. Okay. Okay. She said he was dressed as... My idea of a motion picture burglar. <laughs> Perfect. Nailed it. No notes. <laughs> As the man turned around, she said she was sure he smiled at her. Ugh. I could see the corners of his mouth curl in the shadow of his cap, she said. Then the man walked to the door and almost disappeared inside. It seemed he was bidding his host goodbye. It was all done in a moment. Then he walked down the porch steps and disappeared into the darkness. William Desmond Taylor was six feet tall. He looks kind of like an alternate universe 1920s Indiana Jones. <gasps> Crush? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> um, he was the head of the Motion Picture Directors Association, which was the precursor to the DGA. He had come to Los Angeles around 1912 to work as an actor. He received a contract with the Vitagraph Company, co-starring in four films alongside actress Margaret Gibby Gibson. <laughs> William and Gibby had been great pals, according to a fan magazine. Gibby had grown up in Colorado. Gibby's father had left when she was 12, and she and her mother had traveled around singing and dancing to make a living. The Vitagraph Company had put out a flyer looking for girls for cowboy pictures. Gibby was a skilled horseback rider because she was raised in Colorado, so she went in for an audition. Soon, she was having success in Hollywood and bought a couple of little properties in up-and-coming Beechwood Canyon to make some rental income. Ooh, up-and-coming Beechwood Canyon. Mm -hmm. In 1914, he went on to direct his first film for the Balboa Amusement Producing Company. He then directed two films at Favorite Players Film Co., and then directed most of the 30-episode serial The Diamond from the Sky. Sorry, The Diamond from the Sky. <laughs> in October 1915, he joined Palace Pictures, and in 1916, Palace became a subsidiary of Famous Players Lasky. He went on to direct almost all his other films for Famous Players Lasky. In 1917, Gibby was arrested for sex work during a raid in Little Tokyo. She was working there to make ends meet, but when the cops pulled her out, she said she was researching a role. Nice. However, the cops didn't buy it, um, 
and they still arrested her. But during the raid, one cop grabbed her, pushed her against a wall, and kissed her hard. He said, you're an unusually pretty girl to be working in a place like this. Okay. That's mean to so many people. Correct. So when she went to trial, she was like, well, okay, so everyone else who got arrested basically pled guilty. And she was like, I want a jury trial. So they arrested other sex workers? Yeah. And all the other sex workers basically pled guilty, but Gibby was like, I want a trial. When she went to trial, she was like, that cop assaulted me. And the jury took 15 minutes to deliver a not guilty verdict. Did they... did they rule not guilty because she said that the cop assaulted her? On on the stage, yeah, on the stand, she, well, on the stand, she was like, I think she said, I think she tried to, like, lie her way out of, I'm not positive. I can, I could actually look it up. I think that she basically said, like, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, but then she launched into a story about the cop assaulting her, and she gave, like, quite a performance on the stand, apparently, and the jury sympathized with her, and they were like, fuck that. If you have a skill set, use it. Correct. Especially in that case. Yeah. Gibby was free to go, but she basically got blacklisted in Hollywood after that. So she pounded the pavement, reaching out to every person she knew in Hollywood to help her get another job, but no one would. William Starr continued to rise as he started working at Balboa Amusement Producing Company. There, he met actress Neva Gerber. The two fell in love, got engaged, but called it off in 1919. She would later say, He was the soul of honor, a man of personal culture, education, and refinement. I have never known a finer or better man. Toward the end of World War I, William enlisted in the Canadian Expeditionary Force as a private. He was stationed at Dunkirk and promoted to lieutenant in January of 1919. He was promoted to the rank of major while fighting in France, And when he came back to L.A. in May of 1919, he was honored by the Motion Picture Directors Association with a formal banquet at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. Oh! After the war, he came back to L.A. After the war, he came back to L.A. and directed films starring some of the most popular stars of the era, including Mary Pickford and Wallace Reed. He directed 60 films in the span of his career. Wow. Around 8 a.m. on February 2nd, 1922, the coppers showed up. (laughs) Detective Thompson Ziegler arrived. By the way, I just have to say now, before we get too far into it, every person in this story has a name, like exactly what you would expect them to have. I mean, so far it's been so aggressive. Correct. That it feels fake. William Desmond Taylor. (laughs) Margaret yeah. Gibby Gibson. Yeah, like, Margaret Gibby Gibson is so good. Detective Thompson Ziegler. Yeah, um, they're just like classics, and I and absolutely love it. Just wait, because they're going to keep coming. Fuckle the buck up. I'm De- fuggled. <laughs> <laughs> Detective Thompson Ziegler arrived, and shortly after, a doctor arrived. The doctor and detective observed the body, but didn't move it because they wanted to wait for the coroner. When he was found, William had the following objects in his pockets. Ah, oh, yes. A, a clue. A wallet holding $78, which in today money is like $1,200. Holy Lord. A silver cigarette case. A Waltham pocket watch. 
No, it was not dented and stopped at the time of the murder, unfortunately. Well, then I'm not interested in this story anymore. <laughs> a pen knife and a locket with a photograph of actress Mabel Normand. On his finger, he had a two-carat diamond ring. Ziegler stated that with no signs of violence or forced entry and the fact that William's wallet and ring were still on him, robbery was probably unlikely. The doctor declared that William had died of natural causes. His diagnosis was a stomach hemorrhage, given William's chronic GI problems. The doctor was like, it's official. This man has bubbles in his tummy. (laughs) (laughs) You snuck a JFK in there. (laughs) Gotcha. And I'm proud of you. I got got. It was fine. Okay. As my critics have called it, it was fine. (laughs) He basically said that a stomach hemorrhage would have caused blood to leak out of his mouth and pool behind his head. So that explains the blood. As the group of neighbors, the detective and the doctor waited for the coroner, more actors and friends of Williams arrived. Oh, no. Including Julia Crawford Ivers, which was his most frequent screenwriter. She's a badass. Her son, cameraman Jimmy Van Trees. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, nope. what? Jimmy Van Trees? Yeah. Julia Crawford Ivers, cameraman Jimmy Van Trees, actor Arthur Hoyt, screenwriter and director Charles Maine, who was summoned by Mabel Normand, Williams art director George James Hopkins, and Williams driver Harry Fellows. Harry Fellows, see? And then... The doorway darkened as the imposing figure of Charles Ayton arrived. Charles Ayton, the studio executive from Famous Players Lasky, where William was under contract. If you're not familiar with Famous Players Lasky, you may recognize it by the name of its distribution arm at the time, Paramount Pictures. (gasps) Oh my god. Adolf Zukor was an orphan from Hungary who came to the U.S. with nothing in his pockets but lint. But a dream. Correct. Did you say lint? Yes. Okay, I like that too. (laughs) After arriving in the U.S., a friend got him a job in an upholstery shop. He parlayed that job into an apprenticeship with a furrier, and soon he had started his own fur business. In 1903, his cousin approached him to ask for a loan to help him open a chain of theaters. Keep in mind that 1903 is the year that The Great Train Robbery came out, which is the first motion picture. Um, So at the time, theaters were mostly vaudeville theaters, and they were starting to occasionally show what they would call flickers, which were short motion pictures, which is where we get the term flicks. With his cousin, Adolf Zukor opened a chain of penny arcades. He and his friend, Marcus Lowe, ran a penny arcade on 14th Street together. In their first year of business, Zucor and Lowe made $100,000. We should have opened a theater in the 20s. I know. What were we doing? No, in 1903. Ah, wait. Yeah, that too. Um, And most of the book, Tinseltown, is about Adolf Zucor's life. So if you're interested in this stuff, highly recommend. Um, Both men wanted to be in charge of the business, so they decided to go their separate ways. They stayed friends. And worked together, but they it basically started a rivalry that lasted a lifetime. 
They still lived across the street from each other on 111th Street in New York. In 1912, Adolf Zukor established Famous Players Film Company. He started it when he imported a French film starring Sarah Bernhardt for distribution. At the time, most flickers were like 10 to 15 minutes long, but the French film Queen Elizabeth was an hour long. Marcus Lowe reportedly told Adolf Zukor's wife that Zukor had lost his mind and that his money was sure to follow. Instead, what it did was launch the era of the feature film. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth was a smash hit, and Zukor anonymously mailed Lowe a receipt of the box office reports. <laughs> That's so good. Is this Lowe of, like, Lowe's cinema? <laughs> Just you wait. I'm so excited. Everyone in this story is like, if you don't know the name, you may recognize them by their later name. Marcus Lowe opened a chain of theaters that only showed moving pictures and had no vaudeville, which at the time was a huge risk. But the risk paid off and Zucor... Did it pay off? It did pay off and Marcus Lowe's (laughs) theater chain grew. Um, As the chain grew, Zucor and Lowe developed a symbiotic relationship because Zucor was producing and distributing films and Lowe had theaters. In 1916, Zucor merged famous players, the Lasky Company... And Paramount. Famous Players Lasky and its Paramount Pictures became the largest film company at the time, valued at $12.5 million. Oof. In 1916 money. (laughs) Jesus. That's Bezos money, baby. Correct. Um, Zucor decided to start acquiring his own theaters because he was basically inventing vertical integration for the movie industry. And it put him in direct competition with Marcus Lowe. In retaliation, Marcus Lowe would later decide to construct a skyscraper in Times Square that was twice the size of Zucor's Paramount building. Um, and their rivalry went on like that for most of their lives. William Mann wrote about them, Yet what finally separated the two old acquaintances was something more personal. Lowe was loved, while Zucor was feared. Reporters told stories about Lowe's friendship with his elevator boy, whose troubles the film mogul would listen to every day as they rose from floor to floor. Zucor's elevator boy knew to keep mum when taking the boss up. In my head, I imagine them like, if you watch Shark Tank, I imagine them like Mr. Wonderful and Robert Herjavec. (laughs) Like, Marcus (laughs) Lowe was like, everybody loved him. He was like a big personality. Um, uh, Adolf Zucor was a shrewd businessman, but he was so ahead of the times and he was so like progressive in his capitalism that he basically is responsible for the way that we make movies today um so they both had like massive contribution i mean he basically like he's one of the people who like built the film industry um then lowe's son and zucor's daughter fell in love ah this is such a good story i know (laughs) They were married in 1920 at the Crystal Room at the Ritz-Carlton. And as is customary, the bride's family paid for the wedding, quote, (laughs) grumbling all the way. I freaking love this. Me too. By 1922, the film industry was booming and Zucor owned the most powerful studio in the business. But all of Hollywood was facing major opposition from the reformers. Keep in mind that this was during Prohibition. And there was this huge, like, moral outrage in the country at the time. And so 
So to the reformers, the soul of the nation was at stake, and they said that movies glorified sex and sin and generally bad morals, and they were lobbying for censorship of movies. Um, and anytime a scandal broke in Hollywood, it was just further proof that Hollywood was like a degenerate place and that it was degrading the morals of the nation. And the reformers were trying to get the government to intervene um, and prevent children from being allowed to go to the movies. But children made up like most of the audience, like most of the matinees were kids. So uh, it would have been devastating to like the budding film industry. So that was like a huge problem at the time. And Zucor and the other studio executives were basically doing anything they could to avoid a scandal. Um, I don't go into it in this story, but William Desmond Taylor would become like a vocal mouthpiece for Zucor in terms of keeping movies watchable without actually censoring them. Back at William's apartment, Detective Ziegler got out of the way so that the studio executive, Charles Ayton, could take a look at the body. Great. After doing a cursory walk around, he agreed with the conclusion that William had died of natural causes and demanded no further investigation. Why is the studio executive in charge of this? I mean, they, they, uh, William Mann says in his book, truly, that it was like they ran the city. And when the studio executive shows up, like the cops get out of the way. Like he's the guy in charge here. That's fascinating. I know. Does it work like that still? Can you yes, imagine? Right? It must in some capacity, but can you imagine? I think it must. That was good enough for the doctor. So the doctor left. That is so bananas to me. I know. Doug McLean suggested maybe he was shot in the back. As they waited for the coroner, newspaper reporters gathered outside. Wait, hold on. Is it possible that the studio executive had reason to brush this under the rug? Oh, like the thing I just said about how they would do anything to avoid a scandal? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Once again, it's like, could someone have had a vested interest in changing the (laughs) results of this mystery? As they waited for the coroner, newspaper reporters gathered outside. Whether William had died of natural causes or was murdered, Aiton knew that he needed to avoid a scandal at any cost. So he did what any studio executive would do. He instructed the screenwriter, the cameraman, the actors, and the driver, all of whom were under contract at Famous Players Lasky, to slip upstairs and search William's bedroom. He ordered them to collect any written correspondence, no matter how... uh, inconsequential it seemed and take it to the studio before more cops and reporters showed up they did as they were told i this is totally bananas to me but honestly it bothers me less than like corrupt policing (laughs) (laughs) yeah like i'm like fine (laughs) like the studios never pretended to be no trying to help solve the problem no they didn't like get into the film business to like (laughs) <laughs> protect and serve yeah. you know <laughs> is, that like not, is that not is that not paramount's slogan <laughs> paramount protect and well i mean this is an excerpt from the book they opened cabinets ransacked drawers dumped boxes of letters production logs and files into sacks quote we got all the literature and things like that that we could get and put them into a package fellows said He handed off a package of papers to Van Trees, who hurried out of the house with them. Hopkins accepted another batch from Aiton himself, piled high in a wire wastebasket. The young designer was instructed to take the papers back to the studio and lock them in a safe. 
As Hopkins went scrambling out through the courtyard, he passed Ivers, who was busy prying a letter from Taylor's locked mailbox with her hat pin. <laughs> is that so good? This is so cinematic. I know. Like, <laughs> it's honestly all credit to this book, which is truly written like a novel. Um, but yeah, it was quite a scene. When the coroner arrived, he and Charles Aiton examined the body together. I won't... I... I know you explained it to me, but I still... (laughs) The coroner stuck his hand under William's back, and when he pulled his hand out, it was covered in blood. I like to imagine that Douglas MacLean was like, ha! (laughs) Or like, yuck. Yeah. (laughs) No, yeah. The coroner pulls it out and, like, holds it up and, like, looks at it and goes, hmm, yuck. (laughs) Um... But I imagine that Douglas McLean, who was like, maybe he was shot in the back, was like, I fucking told you so. The studio executive unbuttoned William's waistcoat, which revealed that his shirt was soaked with blood. Together, they turned William's body over and discovered a bullet wound. The autopsy recovered a 38 caliber soft-nosed bullet. It had entered his left side six inches below his armpit and gone upward through his ribcage, penetrating his left lung and lodging in his neck. The bullet holes in his vest and jacket didn't directly line up, leading investigators to determine that his arms had been raised over his head when he was shot. A gun expert determined that the bullet was an older type of ammunition, one that hadn't been made in 15 years. He said, As a matter of fact, there perhaps cannot be one pistol in thousands in Los Angeles loaded with the ancient brand of ammunition which was taken from Taylor's body. And that's where we will pick back up after the break. Wait, no, I wasn't ready. (laughs) I want more. Not yet. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Don't worry, because once we get into the second half, it's just going to be the the trains are rolling. Trust me. I love this so much. You're not going to want to take a break later. Trust me. I don't want to take a break now. It's fine. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back. After these messages. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And we're back. We're back. Welcome back to Soothing Existential Nighttime Radio. This next song goes out to Jessica from Tom. Jessica, Tom says he's sorry about what he's going to say tomorrow. And please don't go back into the past to make it so you never met, because something goes wrong and now he's stuck in a future where you were never born. This one's for all you lovebirds out there. I'm so ready. I have my tea, I have my um, white wine with ice cubes in a to-go cup. (laughs) Oh my god, is it wine o'clock? It's wine o'clock. I was saving it for after the break. You can hear it. Ready? Wow. Yeah. We need to get you a little clock that says wine o'clock. Oh my God, please. All I want is like faux Tuscan decor, don't we all? (laughs) 
Isn't that what we all aspire to? I just want, like, it's wine o'clock, and, like, I definitely want to live, laugh, love somewhere. Yeah. Here. Where were we? Ah, yes. Hollywood. Yeah, in this episode, like, every time I start a new set thing, should it be, like, Maple Leaf Rag plays, and, like, you hear, like, <laughs> horns honking, and it's like, yeah, da, da, yes. da, 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 da. Like, beep, beep. like, meanwhile, back yeah. in Hollywood, and it's like, yep. extra, extra, read all about it, William Desmond Taylor, director slain. Within a few hours, police were at the West 7th Street apartment of actress Mabel Normand. Mabel Normand was a fucking legend. Um, she's giving Britney Snow in Clueless, R.I.P., and she's also a little bit giving Helena Bonham Carter. Oh my god, you are exactly correct! Thank you. How is that possible? Who can say? Oh my god, she really is. I love her. Me too. Before becoming an actress, she was an artist's model, one of the original Gibson girls who appeared on postcards and in ads for Coca-Cola. She had a long tumultuous relationship with producer Max Sennett, who made her a production assistant on his early films and then brought her with him to Los Angeles when he founded Keystone Studios, where she quickly became known for her broad physical comedy. She is credited as being the first film star to receive a pie thrown in the face. (gasps) what a cool thing she like invented that she also played a huge part in starting charlie chaplin's career because she his first film didn't do well um but she convinced max sennett to give him another chance and together they starred in about a dozen films together um she often played his leading lady she was known as his mentor and she would co-write direct and co-direct films with him that is so cool Mm mm-hmm And with Max Sennett's help, she started her own production company as a subsidiary of the Triangle Film Corporation, but she later lost the company during a big shakeup at Triangle. Wait, hold on. Max Sennett. Mm -hmm. Somebody once told me at work, when I was telling them about this podcast, they were like, you have to look into Max Sennett Studios because that place is definitely haunted. Oh, that's great. I love that information. So it is on my list of things I'm going to do. But just so you know, somebody that I worked with told me that Max Sennett Studios is haunted or whatever it is now. Sure. But that's cool. Anyway, that's another cool piece of Hollywood history. The 1974 Broadway musical Mac and Mabel is a fictionalized story of the relationship between Mabel Normand and Max Sennett. Mabel (gasps) was played by Bernadette Peters and Robert Preston played Max Sennett. Oh, Um, She's perfect casting. If you don't know who Robert Preston is, he played Harold Hill in the Music Man movie. (laughs) Yeah, my first crush. Yeah, not you. (laughs) If our listeners don't know. Well, we got trouble, my friend. (laughs) Where is it? (laughs) One day, Mabel found Max Sennett in bed with her best friend, actress Mae Bush. So she left Max Sennett and his studio. No. She signed. Why it's haunted? Maybe. She signed a contract with up-and-coming producer Samuel Goldfish, who later changed his name to Sam Goldwyn, a name you may recognize. Huh. Was he successful? One time, when Sam Goldwyn was struggling to make payroll, she handed him a stack of $50,000 in Liberty Bonds and said, if they will tide you over, you may have them. What a stand-up gal. She is. Um, Sam Goldwyn pursued her and they eventually began an affair, but Mabel reportedly hated him by the end of it. William Mann writes, 
As much as Mabel loathed it, sleeping with Sam Goldwyn was job security. At some point during their affair, she got pregnant with Sam Goldwyn's child, but she went into labor at five months and the baby was stillborn. And I guess she just never forgave him after the way that he handled the whole situation. Mabel had met William Desmond Taylor at Balboa Studios, and the two had quickly developed a close relationship over their love of books. Author Robert Giroux claims that William was deeply in love with Mabel, which may or may not be the case. It's possible given that he was found, like there was a locket with her picture in it on him when he died. Um, Mabel, like many people in Hollywood, developed a cocaine addiction. She struggled to get and stay clean, and her repeated relapses were reportedly devastating to William. A few weeks after her close friend, actress Olive Thomas, died by accidentally drinking mercury while partying in Paris, Mabel called William, who she called Billy, and told him that she wanted to get clean. Billy encouraged her, and she checked into the Glen Springs Sanatorium in central New York. It was rumored that Billy even paid for her treatment because it was said that she'd spent most of her money on her alleged $2,000 a month cocaine habit. Woof. In 1920s money. That's hard to achieve. Correct. She completed treatment and came back to Hollywood. And when she arrived, Billy visited her at her West West 7th Street apartment. While they were catching up about all the big ideas that Mabel had for moving her career forward, there was a knock at the door. Mabel got up and answered it. When she didn't return for a few minutes, Billy thought something might be wrong, so he went to see what was happening. It turned out that it was Mabel's drug dealer at the door. He'd heard that Mabel was back in town and came by to see if she wanted to buy. No. Billy blew up. Mann writes that he not only forcibly ejected the peddler from the house, but threatened to do him bodily harm if he ever came around to harass Mabel again. This is a quote. Skulking off into the night, the dealer shouted back at Taylor, I'll get you sometime. You can't butt into my trade. Not long after that, Charles Ayton invited U.S. Attorney Tom Green to the studio to meet with William. Tom Green was the federal officer responsible for alcohol and narcotics control in Los Angeles. Again, this was the height of prohibition, so prohibition had made the sale of drugs skyrocket. The studio was overrun with drugs. Um, They moved through a network of employees at the studio. Studio drivers would traffic them in and out. Drugs had become a huge problem at the studio because other high-profile actors were developing addictions. They had to go to rehab. They were causing scandals. So it was in the interest of famous players Lasky and William had a personal connection to it um, to get to the bottom of it. According to Robert Giroux, William offered to assist the feds in filing charges against Mabel's drug dealers. For weeks, federal agents staked out the studio lot, but no arrests were ever made. One of the undercover agents had asked about Mabel, and his source told him, quote, before she's through, somebody's going to get killed on her behalf. (gasps) On February 1st, 1922, Billy phoned Mabel to tell her that he had picked up a couple of books for her. As she made her way to Billy's house, at the same time, a few blocks away, a man stopped into a gas station at Alvarado and 6th Street. He appeared to be in his mid-twenties and had dark hair. He wore a dark suit and a light cap. He asked the gas station owner and attendant if they knew where film director William Desmond Taylor lived. They were like, yeah, he comes in here all the time. He lives in the Alvarado Court Apartments. It's over there. Why would they? Why? Why would you do that? I can't imagine. Around 7 p.m., Mabel arrived at Billy's house. 
she brought him a bag of peanuts. Billy asked Henry Peavy to make them a drink. It was prohibition, but Billy and Mabel both personally had well-stocked bars. And he asked Mabel to guess what books he'd bought her. She correctly guessed it was a translation of Nietzsche and a romance called Rosamundi by author Ethel M. Dell. Outside, a woman who was on her way to visit her granddaughter, who lived on the other side of the Alvarado Court Apartments from William, was walking up the street when she noticed a man waiting for the streetcar. The streetcar came and went, and he didn't get on it. Ooh, I hate that. Oh, He then walked up Alvarado toward the apartments. The woman said that he made her nervous and described him as wearing an ill-fitting dark suit and a plaid or checked cap. She thought for a moment that it might be Edward Sands, William Desmond Taylor's former valet, but she said she couldn't be sure it was him. She said at some point he abruptly stopped walking and, quote, transferred something from his left hip pocket to his right hand pocket of his coat. Then he turned right on Maryland Street and disappeared. Maryland Street ran right behind William's apartment. Inside, Henry brought Billy and Mabel their drinks, and Billy told him he can go home for the night, adding, And don't worry, I think I can fix up everything downtown tomorrow. Stand-up guy. I'm just really bummed out that he's about to get shot. Aren't we all? Mabel sat and played piano, deliberately hitting wrong chords to make Billy laugh. I love them. I love their friendship. (laughs) At the same time, the McLean's maid was working in the kitchen and heard a man walking up and down the alley behind their apartment, heading for the garage, which was in between their apartment and Billy's. At 7.35, Mabel had to go home because she had an early call the next day for a film she was shooting. Billy told her that that was fine because he had work, he had to work on his taxes, but he said he would call her later to see if she had a chance to start reading the books. She told him to call around nine. He walked her out to the car where her chauffeur was waiting. Noting the books she had in the back seat, he said, Good Lord, Mabel, you certainly are going for heavy reading this winter. Then he kissed her goodbye. She tugged on his earlobe and said, Toodaloo, Billy. Oh, you're going to make me cry. She later said, as my car turned around, I waved at him. He was partly up the stairs there. I looked back and we wafted kisses on our hands to each other for as long as I could see him standing there. That was at 7.45 p.m. Are you holding for a plane? No, I'm just very sad. Okay. (laughs) I don't like it because you made me care about them. I know. (laughs) I love them. Okay, ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Around noon the next day, a robin's egg blue roadster came screeching around the corner and came to a stop outside the Alvarado Court Apartments. Out hopped 19-year-old actress Mary Miles Minter. Mary is exactly as you'd imagine, blonde ringlets, big blue eyes. She is showbiz baby. She is showbiz baby. She's like a 19-year-old version of Darla Dimple from Cats Don't Dance. (laughs) the newspaper reporters immediately swarmed her as she ran up to the apartment but the police wouldn't let her in it isn't true is it she asked when the police told her that william was dead she turned around and gave a quick quote to the reporters why he was a wonderful man and everyone who knew him loved him and then she ran down the court and hopped back in her car and sped down to the morgue with reporters following close behind mary miles minter grew up in shreveport louisiana Mm. Her birth name was Juliet Riley. 
At five years old, she went in with her older sister to an, to an audition because her mom couldn't find a babysitter. The director liked her and gave her a part. Oh, yikes. She's the showbiz baby. After what that... happened to her sister? She also was an actress. Okay. You're like the little girl in The Prestige that's like, what happened to his brother? <laughs> I just feel bad. Nobody cares about the man in the box. It was her audition. I know. And her sister ruined it. She's going to come. Don't worry. Margaret will come back later. Another Margaret. Oh, we love a Margaret. We do. Some of us relate. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. Did your little sister steal a role from Oh, you? no. Just that all these people have my name. Yeah. Or I have theirs more aptly. After that, she just basically never stopped booking. Her mom brought her to Chicago to perform in a play in, uh, when she was 10, but child labor laws prohibited her from working, so her mom sent for the birth certificate of her deceased cousin, Mary <gasps> Miles Minter, and just like that, 10-year-old Juliet Riley became 16-year-old Mary Miles Minter. Oh, big yikes. Oh. That is probably yuck. the most apt metaphor I could give for the life of Mary Miles Minter and her stage mom, who you're about to meet, Charlotte Shelby. Um, Charlotte Shelby would be played by Frances McDormand, I feel. Ooh, okay. Love that. When Mary was 15, she fell in love with her married 42-year-old director, James Kirkwood Sr. When she was actually 15 mm-hmm. or when she was, like, her cousin's No, 15? when oh, she no, was she was really 16 15. when she was 10. Right? Yes. James Kirkwood Sr., told her that he didn't want to take her virginity without marrying her. So basically they stood out in a field on the Santa Barbara coast and he got down on one knee and was like, I hereby declare us married in front of God. And then he took her virginity. Great work, dude. The is that? It's not. <laughs> it doesn't. That's the affair <laughs> resulted in an unplanned pregnancy and Mary wanted to keep the baby she was positive that James Kirkwood would really marry her and help her raise the baby and leave his wife. But instead, at the time, he left and went to New York. Mary wrote him letters begging him to come back. Charlotte found the letters and was furious. So against her will, she took Mary to a doctor who performed illegal abortions, and they terminated her pregnancy. Oh, woof. Mary was devastated. When Mary's career started picking up steam, stage mom Charlotte was able to get her contract offer at Famous Players Lasky from Adolf Zukor. She played it against an offer from another studio, and Zukor offered her a $1.3 million contract, making her the first actress to land a million-dollar contract. Holy shit. They gave her the starring role in the new film Anne of Green Gables, directed <gasps> by William Desmond Taylor. O.M. Mary was smitten with him immediately. William politely declined her advances, citing their 30-year age difference. Stand-up guy. But that really only made Mary believe that he did love her back. He just wanted to wait until she was older. Mary, he's just not that into you. He's just not that into you. He's not busy with work. He's he's not. You're there. You're both there. You're yeah, both at he's work. He's not. He doesn't have to, like, be in the studio tomorrow babe he's 
he's yeah, not that into you. Exactly. If he wanted to, he would. If he wanted to, he would. But he shouldn't in this case. If, so no, he shouldn't. Don't worry about it. <laughs> if someone is too busy, what that says is that they have a time management problem. It doesn't mean that you know what I mean. It's like he's not. He's never too busy. If he wanted, he's not to, too busy. He, to he just doesn't want to make time for yeah. you. Um. Which is fine, but that's, like, not... Then that's not it. Right. Most people close to William say that he did not return her affections. Mary disagreed. Knowing that Mary loved him, Charlotte Shelby made sure to tell him off in front of the whole crew. Mary apologized to him, and William told her she should always obey her mother. What an uncomfortable situation to be in as, like, a grown man. I know. (laughs) That led Mary to believe that, like, the only thing standing between them was her mother. Mary, yeah. I know. William moved his office to another studio owned by famous players Lasky. Um, Some people, like Julia Crawford Ivers, kind of say that she, like, he, like, did that to get away from Mary. But I don't, some people, I've also read that he was basically, like, promoted. So I don't really know what the story is behind that. But it may have just been, like, a blessing within a blessing. Yeah, correct. Um, so Mary basically just, like, wrote him a bunch of letters. Love letters. Yikes. Once, when William was visiting a set of a film that Mary happened to be working on, because they were both contracted at Paramount, or players, famous players Lasky, Mary's mother saw him on set, stormed up to him, and said in front of everybody, if I ever catch you hanging around Mary again, I'll blow your goddamn brains out. It's not his fault, Mom. I know. A few months later, Mary came home late, and Charlotte accused her of being out with William. When Mary refused to answer whether or not she was with him, I don't think she was, um, Charlotte dumped a pitcher of water on her head to quote-unquote cool her down. Mary yelled, I'm going to end it all, and ran into Charlotte's room, locking the door behind her. Charlotte, her secretary, and Mary's grandmother followed her to the room, but suddenly there were two shots fired in the room. (gasps) Charlotte called for their security guard and chauffeur to come break the door down. When they all got inside, Mary was laying on the floor. The chauffeur, named Chauncey Eaton, not even going to touch that, picked Mary up in his (laughs) arms, but then said, Mrs. Shelby, there's no blood on her. Mary's grandmother was like, this is a quote, no, she is not shot. Stand her up, Chauncey. So he did. When he did, she opened her eyes and said, I thought I'd give you all a jolt. Oh, teens. Correct. Teen stars. (laughs) I know. It's like a lethal combination for your psyche as a parent. Yes. One day, Mary called William's home phone. His chauffeur answered and said, as he was instructed to, that he wasn't at home. Mary didn't believe him, so she drove her blue roadster over to the apartment and discovered that he was home. She was very upset, and William told her in the kindest way possible that she needed to stop contacting him. He was like, if I want to see you, I'll call you. Like, Please leave me alone. So Mary left. In April of 1921, Mary and her mother attended the opening of Verdi's Otello at the Philharmonic Auditorium. It was a prestigious event, and as she waited for the show to start, she casually turned around to find William was sitting behind her. To her, To her horror, he was accompanied by his art director, George James Hopkins. 
At that exact moment, the show started. Wait, why is that bad? Just wait. In the middle of the opening scene of the opera, Mary whipped around and said, so this is what is going on. Oh. George and William had been in a discreet relationship for seven years. They worked together on most films. He was almost always an art director or set designer on William's films. He was also much younger than he was. George described their relationship as an affair of the heart, discreet but passionate. George was supposed to accompany an actress to the premiere that night, but she'd gotten the flu, and on a whim, George had hopefully asked William if he wanted to go with him, because at the time, men never accompanied men to a big theater event like that um, at that time in Hollywood. But George was surprised that William said yes. Aww. They still had to arrive separately to maintain discretion, but George... So they had to be like... Oh my god, no way. (laughs) They just didn't, like, come in a car together. They had to meet at the event. At intermission, William left claiming to have a migraine. George later said, quote, All that went through my head was an overwhelming urge to smash my fists down on top of Mary's golden head. (laughs) She's been ruining his life for so long. Correct. Around the same time, Gibby acted in a very loose adaptation of The Tempest. It was a short film where she met sometime actor and full-time thief Don Osborne. Are you going to explain that sentence? Yeah. Okay, great. Don Osborne was 6'3 and classically handsome. He wanted to make movies, but he made ends meet through forgery and petty schemes. He was married, but he and Gibby still developed a friendship and quote-unquote romantic dalliance. One of Gibby's friends, an actress named Louise Glom, had gotten her a role in a big picture. These names. Gibby had parlayed that into a meet. Because remember, Gibby was blacklisted at this point, basically. Like, no one in Hollywood would hire her. She had parlayed that into a meeting with producer Jay Parker Reed. When she met with him, she pitched him an idea for a film that she and Don Osborne wanted to make. Jay Parker Reed said that he was interested... But over the coming months, while Don Osborne was supposed to be writing the film, he got distracted by falling in love with his cousin, Rose Putnam, and never finished it. Listen, have you ever been to a Starbucks? What? That's where everybody writes their screenplays. Oh. Yeah, for sure. And if you read their texts over their shoulders, (laughs) you can learn their secrets. Um, well, listen, Gibby would have liked the way you're thinking, because at the same time, Don Osborne was running a gang of grifters who Gibby got involved with because she was still having trouble paying her bills. They developed a system where she would send them marks and then get a cut of the deal. Often, these schemes involved Don's cousin, Rose, who he fell in love with, seducing some married man, and then Don pretending to be her husband and the group blackmailing the man in exchange for not outing him to his wife, his job, etc. Also just need to note, at this time, Gibby was renting a house in Beechwood Canyon that is currently for sale. I looked it up on the For how much? Uh, This one, I think, is like 1.5. I mean, it's not outrageous for Beechwood Canyon. For sure. Around this time, a new member joined the group. That man was Ross Sheridan who is mostly known by his alias from the time, Blackie Madsen. 
Ross Sheridan was in his 50s. He was between 5'6 and 5'8. He was bow-legged and walked with his feet facing out. There are not... I couldn't find any extant pictures of him, although I think there are mugshots of him that the author was able to obtain. He had grown up the son of a stock dealer, but when his father died, his family lost all their money. Ross enlisted in the army during the Spanish-American War, but he was dishonorably discharged less than a year into his service. He's giving me Lee Harvey Oswald vibes. Yes. What did he do? Um, I'm not entirely sure, but you're going to learn a lot about him right now that may illuminate what the the problem was. <laughs> the army okay. let him keep his gun, a 38 caliber revolver. When the woman he loved fell in love with another man, he went to confront them as they got ready to board a trolley. As he approached them, he thought he saw the other man reach for a gun, so he panicked and shot him. Ah, I get it now. He said, quote, I did not intend to shoot him, but it turned out that the other man had no gun. So Ross Sheridan pled guilty to felonious assault on an unarmed man and was sentenced to two years in 1902. When he got out, they gave him his gun back. Great. Great work, team. I know. After that, he relocated to Los Angeles. By the summer of 1921, Don Osborne and Ross Sheridan were basically running a full-time blackmailing business. Was it all sexy schemes? The ones I read about were, yeah. I mean, a lot of it was like they were just blackmailing people that they had secrets on. Uh, But most of the schemes were like Rose seducing men and then going to see them. And then um, Ross and Don showing up and being like, hey... That's a violation of the Mann Act. You can't bring a woman across state lines to have sex with her. The FBI is on to you. But if you pay them off, the agents might leave you alone. And like impersonating the FBI uh, to get people to pay them, which is what they were eventually caught for. But we'll get to that. One night around the same time, Charlotte Shelby looked around her house and realized that Mary had snuck out. She climbed into her car, dragging her secretary, Charlotte Whitney, with her. She directed the chauffeur through the streets of L.A. and told him to park at the corner of 4th Street and Alvarado. She climbed out of the car and walked three blocks down to the Alvarado Court Apartments. Worth noting, she purposefully had him park so that he didn't, they didn't know where she was going. After banging on the door of William's dark bungalow for a few minutes, he finally emerged in his robe. Charlotte looked around the apartment and realized Mary obviously wasn't there. William told her. Did Charlotte think this whole time that she was, her daughter was having an affair with this man who was like very obviously not into her at all? Yes. Okay. Interesting. Mary was also though, especially in this like cooling off period, dating other people. She just was like, but like hopelessly in love with him. So she like snuck out and I guess Charlotte assumed she was with William because I don't think she Mm. believed that William wasn't sleeping with her after what happened with. James Kirkwood Sr. Gotcha. He told Charlotte that he didn't know where she was, but he was happy to make a few phone calls for her and try to help her locate Mary. He called the the first AD, obviously. Um, and That should be your first call. Correct. And several other people that they worked with, but no one knew where she was. So Charlotte eventually gave up and left. 
When she climbed back into the car, her secretary, Charlotte Whitney, noticed that she had been carrying in her hand, concealed in her sleeve, her 38 caliber revolver. <gasps> the same one that Mary had used in her fake suicide attempt. God, the whole family is drama. Is it me? Am I the drama? <laughs> yes. Yes. On December 23rd, 1921. This is the part where it's like the timeline starts getting scrunched up. On December 23rd, 1921, Mary ran into William at a department store. I don't think they even exchanged words, but Mary like knew at this point that she had to move on. But being Mary, she couldn't resist going over and seeing him one more time. So that night, she snuck out of the house and went to William's apartment. She brought him a note that said, Dear William Desmond Taylor, this is goodbye. I want you to know that I will always love you. She snuck out of the house in the middle of the night, showed up at his apartment, and he was like, what are you doing here? It's so late. Like, was not happy to see her. They exchanged words. Mary cried. She tried to hug him, but he wouldn't even hug her. He, like, kept her at arm's length. So she gave him the note. He read it, and then he walked her out to her car. At which point, she reached up and pulled his handkerchief out of his pocket and put hers in its place. And then she left. Now it is time for me to introduce the classic foils of any true crime story, the police detective in charge of the case, (laughs) and the DA. (laughs) They are the foils. Sergeant Edgar C. King was the detective assigned to the Taylor murder. Otherwise known as Eddie King, see? (laughs) The DA at the time was Thomas Lee Woolwine, a man from Tennessee who was coincidentally preparing to run for governor. Hmm, that won't affect anything at all, I bet. (laughs) Eddie King was well known in the LAPD for having, quote, solved more major crime mysteries than any other police officer in Southern California. It really does not get any better than the police guy who's like the most famous for solving mysteries and the DA who's about to run for governor. <laughs> like you just don't get, you just, just doesn't get any better than that. Well, more do you need? Truly. And, and the studio. It's like <laughs> three people with like exact conflicting it's the three possible angles yes. that could make it difficult to solve yes, a crime. exactly. As Eddie King brought Woolwine up to speed on the Taylor case, he told him about the robbery. William Desmond Taylor had hired his valet, Edward Sands, in 1919. Edward Sands was about 5'5", bow-legged, and spoke with a Cockney accent that most people were pretty sure wasn't real. <laughs> Every person in this story, I swear to God. There's something so funny about that story. Also, for what it's worth, Edward Sands' real name was Edward Snyder. He was also using an alias. Of course he was. Not so suspicious Hello. at all. <laughs> Hello. Hello, Governor. I'm Edward Sands. Also, I didn't write this down, but one of the... The, I don't know why I didn't write it down, because it's great. Edward Sands had been in the military, and he was like a military cook, and... William liked him because his cooking was super bland and it was easy on his upset tummy. Oh, it's very much like 
Um, actually, this vampire hunter is the one who <laughs> did all the work, and the other one being like, "We know it's you, David." Yeah, exactly. Sean, Edward Sands. <laughs> we know it's you, Sean. Um, <laughs> I don't know why you even try, Sean. <laughs> Edward Sands was reportedly very devoted to William for most of the time that he was employed by him. But what William didn't know is that Edward Sands frequently went snooping through his things, even like setting up booby traps to figure out who he was sleeping with and like what he was up to. In November of 1921, William returned from a trip to London to find that his car had been totaled. His chauffeur explained that his valet, Edward Sands, whose real name was Edward Snyder, had taken it for a joyride and crashed it. In the house, William discovered that seven of his custom suits were missing. In a bank statement he received in the mail, he found a canceled check for $4,500 that he hadn't written. On the desk were 20 checks where Edward Sands had practiced forging his signature. (laughs) He filed a police report and he never saw Edward again. What the fuck? A few weeks later, on December 4th, William's house was robbed again. A bunch of jewelry was stolen, along with William's entire supply of expensive imported gold-tipped cigarettes. Which tip of it was gold? I assume the filter. At this point, he hired Henry Peavy. Edward Sands had been living in the house with him, so when he hired Henry Peavy, he was like, I don't want you to live here, but I will give you a stipend extra to pay for your rent also just so you know the rent was like five dollars i don't want to know that why would i (laughs) (laughs) two weeks later when picking up the newspaper from the front porch henry peavy discovered the butt of a gold tip cigarette on the front steps Hmm. but it wasn't there when he left the night before and william hadn't obtained more of the fancy cigarettes whoever had burglarized the house two weeks earlier had stood right there and smoked a cigarette then that night while William was sleeping inside. At this time, he also started getting random phone calls where the other person would just hang up. And it was starting to freak William out. Yeah, I hate that. On December 27th, William opened his mail to find two pawn tickets mailed to him from Stockton, California. The pawn tickets were for jewelry, were for the jewelry that had been stolen from him. The note that came with them read... So sorry to inconvenience you, even temporarily. Also, observe the lesson of the forced sale of assets. A Merry Xmas and a Happy New Year. William recognized the handwriting immediately. It was Edward Sands. But the worst part of all was the way that Edward had signed the pawn tickets. He had signed them William Dean Tanner. William's real name. (gasps) And that's where we will pick back up in part two of the murder of William Desmond Taylor. No! Wait. Okay. Yeah. So he stole his stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. The Cockney accent guy stole Mm -hmm. his stuff. Yeah. Pawned it Mm -hmm. as him. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he got, like, the tickets. Yeah, and then mailed him the pawn tickets. Like, the receipts. Why did he mail him the receipts? Psychological warfare? I don't know. I mean, I think that... Well, why is he so mad at him? I don't know. Do you know when you're just not going to tell me? No, I don't know. 
I can't wait to see how all of these yarns become a scarf. (laughs) (laughs) Very well put. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yeah. No, it's just fucked up. But I, I, I mean... The one thing I can think of is that obviously he knew something about William, which we'll find out next episode, and probably wanted to remind him that he knew. Um, is it about to like keep him his... from like pressing charges and whatever? Is it about like his past? Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important that he knew he mm-hmm. knows his name. Yep, because William oh God, Desmond so Taylor wasn't excited. always William Desmond Taylor. I'm so excited. What a fun Hollywood mystery. We love a fun Hollywood mystery. I love a fun Hollywood mystery. I'm thoroughly enjoying this. I can't wait for the next part. Yay, me too. I love this story. Oh, I'm so excited. So thank you for listening. Thank Um, you for researching. I hope everyone likes the story as much as I do, and I can't wait to share part two with you. Yay. Yay. All right. Well, see you next time. We'll see you next time. Uh, Fuckle the buck up, I guess. What do we say? Uh, We don't know. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. (laughs) Fuckle the buck up. Smoches, say. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.